Welcome to Motos and Friends, a podcast from the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. It's been quite a while since Harley Davidson was involved in road racing, but thanks to the newly conceived king of the baggers class, the motor company is back on paved circuits. Last year, the series had less than a handful of rounds, and to their credit, the Harley bagger, piloted by the very capable Kyle Wyman, took the championship win. Needless to say, turning a bagger into a real race machine was not easy. The Harley-Davidson effort consisted of a group of volunteers at the factory who pulled a considerable amount of their time and knowledge in a combined effort to create, develop, and prepare a motorcycle that could actually race with real credibility. The machine itself is amazing, as you might imagine. And for this week's podcast, senior editor Nick DeSena chats to us about some of the race bike secrets. And of course, his ride on Wyman's actual factory race bike at Indy Motorsports Ranch in Arizona. This year, the Moto America King of the Baggers Championship has been extended to seven rounds. They've already raced at Daytona Speed Week for the first round, and it's gonna be real interesting to see how the remaining rounds shake out. We hope you enjoy this episode. This was a, sorry for the long dramatic pause, but there's really no other way to put this. This was genuinely the most unique experience I've ever had doing this job. And uh, it was quite the honor to- You're welcome. Yes, yes, yes. thank you, Arthur. Um, You shall be getting a Christmas card this year. Um, But it it was definitely, not, not just being a unique experience, it was definitely an honor to be a part of this whole process because um, this is a full factory, you know, road racing effort uh, from Harley Davidson. And we got to ride Kyle Wyman's championship winning motorcycle that they picked up the, the championship in the 2021 King of the Baggers racing series, which followed the uh, 2021 uh, uh, Moto America Superbike Championship for uh, three select rounds. Um, and it's just an insanely rare opportunity uh, overall, mainly just looking at it from a scarcity standpoint. I mean, there are only two of these motorcycles in existence. You have Kyle's a race winning, or not race winning, but, but yeah, it is a race winning bike, a championship winning motorcycle, and Travis's um, podium achieving uh, motorcycle as well. Uh, but we went out to Indy Motorsports Ranch and we were able to spin a handful of laps on them and just get an idea for what these bikes are capable of is, you know, watching that stuff uh, from the paddock or on TV, you know, it's incredibly interesting just to see these massive touring motorcycles totally redefined and re-engineered and turning them into full-blown race bikes and it was pretty pretty intense to wrap your mind around it and just sort of get into the whole situation of it but overall it was one of the craziest experiences i've had yet and as a fun fact kyle's bike will be going to the um harley davidson museum in milwaukee so um I will have something that I touched inside a museum. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Awesome. Myself and awesome. some other uh, colleagues. And then, of course, uh, you know, Kyle Wyman did win a championship on it. And I'm sure they'll have his photo on there instead of mine. But, you know. 
Yeah, but yeah. It was... so, what, so what was the what was the biggest most noticeable difference? I mean, I, I I mean the thing that strikes me about bag of racing, I think everybody's first thought when we heard about this series was how the heck are you going to take a street bike that has what about a thirty degree lean angle, um, you know, sort of maximum before you start scraping everything? How the heck are you going to race that round a track? Yeah, and I think we all had that thought because we're <laughs> well, taking. I'm sure. Oh, I know. Let's stick some bags on the back so that we can slide the rear end. Yeah, it, you <laughs> know, them like a berm. <laughs> it's you're you're taking a touring motorcycle that I can say this with a, a great deal of confidence was never designed to yeah, right. go racing. Um, yeah, and you're turning it into something that carries now, according to the race team, something like 55 degrees of of lean angle. So. Whoa! Not as much as a superbike or super sport. Definitely getting there. MotoGP yeah. machines only carry about sixty. Yeah, I think they go. Uh, I mean, I think they can get as far as I think Marquez has has done like a sixty-three. That's a MotoGP machine, and this is a beggar. Fifty-five degrees is serious. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's real lean. It's doing it, and you know, to get to your question of what was the the thing that I noticed the most of getting on this motorcycle, uh, everything. <laughs> everything is different it is a motorcycle at the end of the day it is two wheels an engine and, and a chassis and it does handle like a motorcycle and there are some extremely surprising things but before we get into all that let's just kind of give the listeners a time frame because this is probably the most shocking thing that i learned while having this motorcycle presented to us from from kyle and travis and the uh, harley davidson screaming eagle factory racing so if we go back, wind back the clock to 2020, the King of the Baggers Racing Series came on as an invitational one-off exhibition race that happened at Laguna Seca. And it obviously received a lot of attention. Now, a lot of different uh, V-Twin manufacturers and you know Harley and Indian and uh, V-Twin performance manufacturers took heed of this. They said, hey, we really have something here. So Moto America and the King of the Baggers organizers teamed up again for a three-round championship. Now, this was in 2021. Harley officially threw their hat in the ring with a full factory effort in January of 2021. By March of 2021, they had the first working prototype of the Road Glide Special. Now, the first race was in April. So... That's not a long time to do anything, let alone take a 800 something pound plus motorcycle and turn it into a full-fledged race bike. Well, something competitive for sure, yeah. Yes, and then make a competitive one at that time. Now, the end of the King of the Baggers Racing Series came in July, 2021. And the whole time they're developing this motorcycle, you know, working at it and just kind of getting into the the sort of the, the nitty gritty of making this a an, an even more competitive thing. And there's, they learned tons of stuff along the way, but let's go ahead and just focus in on what makes the bike, the bike. And of course, what it starts with in the centerpiece of every V-twin motorcycle is the, the engine. So what we have here is the 131R motor. Now, you and I could go ahead and order the 131CI engine from Harley-Davidson. That is their performance crate engine. So that is where they started. 
And in terms of horsepower and torque, we got the sort of uh, playing the cards close to the vest sort of deal from the race team. And if you guys have ever really seen any of these stories from professional race teams, whether it's Moto America, World Superbike, British, uh, British Superbike, MotoGP, they'll always give vague numbers about the horsepower and torque because eh, they don't want to show their hand to the competitors. I get it. Of course. The rules are pretty relaxed on this, though, aren't there? I mean, were they, are they running turbos or any of that kind of stuff? Are they allowed to do that? Uh, you can. Uh, there are some specific rules for those applications. But uh, if I remember correctly, I believe it was Thrask. Yeah. Uh, performance ran one. But typically this bike is not. So this bike is not running a turbo. So it's just a naturally aspirated 131. Correct. That's been tweaked to hell. <laughs> okay. You know, not as much as you'd think. And that that's actually something that that really kind of took me off guard. I, I imagine that every bit and bob would be, you know, uh, massaged in some way. But internally, they've only done a handful of changes. Um, so there's a new piston shape, and that's really to deal with uh, compression. It has a different cam uh, because they're running dramatically different timing and things like that. It must be running race fuel, I should think. I mean, pretty serious race fuel. Race fuel, and that's my my next point. Sure. They have a new uh, injector and throttle body system, and that's really just to deal with, you know, the fact that they need more fueling and they need to control it to a much higher degree because it's a race bike. They're going to be using a whole lot of fuel instead of a touring motorcycle that just kind of chugs along and gets fairly decent fuel economy. <laughs> right. Now... That all stacks up to something like, according to the engineers, race team, and what they're willing to divulge, peak figures of in the ballpark of 150, plus or minus, who's to say? <laughs> right. And who's to say is the race team? They just want to tell us. 150 peak horsepower is pretty respectable out of that kind of motion. I mean, that, that really is. Yeah, respectable for sure. And 150 plus foot pounds of torque as well. Which is more than respectable. <laughs> more than respectable. So that thing's going to have some grunt coming off the corners. For sure, for sure. What is it they say about um, horsepower is how hard you hit the wall and torque is how far you take the wall with you once you've hit it. Yeah, I could see that. Um, okay. Luckily, no one did anything to these bikes and they will arrive to the, the museum in pristine condition. But um, one of the interesting tidbits and sort of intimidating tidbits that uh, one of the engineers told us during the presentation is at something like, I believe he said uh, around 2,500 RPM or, or maybe give or take, uh, you're, you're, you're receiving 120 foot-pounds of torque. So on a motorcycle that revs out to something like, Holy moly. Uh, you know, 6,600 RPM or, or 6.8, it's a variable because they can access their ECU and change things. Um, you know, that's, that's a figure that you go, oh, okay. And there's no traction control. Ah, I see. So there's no traction control? No, no. Um, Holy moly. For the rules, uh, no traction control. So you're riding this thing raw, baby. But you know, you have a holy moly. You have you have some some impressive figures there. Now, the thing about the in engine that's really cool. Um, before we get into just riding it, um, obviously building up that motor, 
you're going to run into some uh, some issues. So they had issues with cooling and making sure that the engine was cool and and just getting it to survive, as with any race team does when they start, you know, boosting things, right? So if you just take a look at the engine, just at the photos that we have on the website, and when I was standing next to it, you start to notice a handful of, of cool little, little additions that they did. So first off on the left side, they actually extended the, the uh, jug fins. So, so they just welded on extra aluminum bits to the fins to extend those out to improve its cooling and uh, heat dissipation. Just more surface area. And the more surface area you can have, the cooler it's going to run. Exactly. So that was one way. And again, before we, th this is a, according to Harley, a precision air oil cooled. So it is the air oil cooled uh, engine. So there's no water cooling. There's no radiator. They're pushing these types of numbers on something that, you know, is not the most efficient way of cooling an engine and hasn't been for like 50 years, but. <laughs> right. You know, especially the rear cylinder. And yes. It's got to be running freaking hard. So beyond that, um, and actually to your point, that's what we'll get to next. This is a race bike, right? They strip everything off. It doesn't matter if it's not needed for the racetrack, it's gone. So that means the horn is gone. And then they started <laughs> noticing that they were dealing with some, some temps that, that kind of went up, especially on the rear cylinder. Someone realized, one of the engineers realized that the horn and its shape, which is this kind of downward little cone creates a kind of a, a turbulence in that area like a little bit and of it actually vortex. redirects exactly it redirects air to the rear cylinder wow. so they're like oh without the horn there the rear cylinder isn't receiving as much air it's it's not able to cool as effectively wow. so they developed this thing called the horn fang and i guess the, the story <laughs> is it's just called the horn slash fang which essentially is a little horn scoop that is now aimed forward significantly longer and helps redirect air into that rear cylinder to, again, help cooling. Wow. Uh, the other cool thing that they did um, is add some oil capacity. Like you have your standard precision air oiled cooled engine. And so on the bottom of the, the engine, just right behind the front wheel, you'll see a little oil cooler. That's not uncommon for any motorcycle, right? Now, the, the extra race bit is adding another oil cooler inside the fairing of the road glide, where the headlights would be. So if you look at the race bike, you'll see some cool aluminum uh, grill in there. Well, that's, that's essentially an oil, uh, an oil cooler. So they're adding oil capacity because there is more oil going through the system now, and that just helps cool the engine. Helps so they're the experimenting engine. with other ways to help cool the engine, and each racetrack has presented its own um, idiosyncrasies in terms of just getting the, the engine to be as reliable as it possibly can be. But a fun fact is, you know, we were talking in the, in the last, last week's episode with the road and street glide STs, the red line is somewhere in the high 5,000s. I don't remember the, the number exactly. The average RPM that Kyle is keeping is above the red line of the production bikes the entire time. So he's up there in the 6,000s 
like six four, six five, whatever, six six, six eight area, and it, they'll change it depending on the racetrack they're at. You look at a racetrack like Road America that's got those long, long, long straights. Yeah, that thing's going to be wide open for, for a long, long time. A long time. And they said Ooh. because this season, um, the King of the Baggers race is going to Daytona, so. Daytona means holding the bike wide open for a long time. If, if I remember the figure is something like they're on the back wall for something like 40 seconds. Um, Daytona is not kind to engines ever. That is not kind. Not yeah. just this engine, right? all engines. So <laughs> for sure. now we've given you guys the, the sort of the rough shot of this 131R engine. So what's it like to ride it? Well, actually pretty, pretty user-friendly. It's uh, I had a totally different preconceived notion. I thought it was just going to be this violent, torquey beast that was going to spit me to the moon the second I stared at it. But to Kyle and Travis Wyman's, um, uh, we'll say development abilities, they were able to, with the help of the engineers, make a bike that's actually incredibly approachable in that that context so the fueling is just ungodly amounts of immaculate i mean the way it picks up you have that traditional very tractable milwaukee 8 feel that we all kind of expected but it's even more so so those those performance figures while a little bit intimidating on paper you're like eh, 150 foot pounds of torque sounds pretty gnarly well it is but you can actually use it. And you have to remember that a V-twin engine like this doesn't spin up super aggressively. It, it actually spins up in a way where you can wrap your head around it to some degree. Yeah, it sounds like it's predictable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's predictable, it's tractable. And the, the, the throttle connection is just perfect. Probably one of the best I've used ever. And I credit that to wow. one, the engineering team, and two, Kyle and Travis Wyman uh, being more than accomplished superbike and racers. Yeah, awesome. That was really cool. Now, the, the thing that you will notice if you were to ride one of these things is it still has the standard gearbox. So you still have that chunky V-twin shifting. And that's what Kyle and Travis were both really critical of before riding. You know, it doesn't have a mechanical slipper clutch. So they made us keenly aware of the fact that we needed to be uh, very deliberate and controlled with our downshifts um, and with our upshifts as well. Because again, chunky V-twin gearbox, there's a lot of linkage on these things. So long throws, it's not as tight as a sport bike would be by any stretch of the imagination. You have to really put some force through that pedal and make sure it gets into gear. I was not the only person out there that missed a gear. Pretty much all of us did because I have no context for writing. I take it they didn't keep they didn't keep a heel toe shifter, which personally I would have liked. I was always a big yes, fan of. Sadly, them. sadly they did not. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition to you know the the super bikes and and super sports and just you know traditional race machines that these guys have grown up racing and winning on, and. Um, versus a gearbox like this, which takes a lot of force. And to quote Travis, um, yeah, I'm going to get his exact quote incorrect, but he said, you can't be too aggressive with the gearbox on this bike. So he's essentially saying, don't be shy. Because typically 
you don't want to hammer <laughs> the gear shifter too hard, but you know. Now, obviously it didn't have a quick shifter. So presumably you're using the clutch. Yeah, you, you quick shift the old school way on the upshift and uh, downshifting, you know, you really need to use the, the clutch and, and slip it right um, and make sure you're rev matching uh, because you don't have an auto blipper. Now, Travis let us in on to why there's not a quick shifter and it makes perfect sense. So it goes back to just how a V-twin gearbox like this is set up. Again, longer gear ratios, you have that long throw between each gear and then the linkage. So if you think about a typical sport bike, the linkage is direct. It goes from the shifter um, you know, up to uh, the shifting arm and everything's pretty direct from there. If you look at a V-twin motorcycle, there's a whole lot of linkage between the shifter, another point, another elbow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a quick shift, you, a quick shift, you need like a one and a half second delay. <laughs> yeah, and that's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. <laughs> so they they've been testing them. They are continuing to test quick shifters. Um, ostensibly, it could also run an auto blipper because it does use um, red by wire throttle. But managing the kill times is much more difficult when you're dealing with a gearbox in, of this type and then the linkage that is associated with it. So Travis had some really good insight um, as to why they couldn't do it on these iterations of the bikes. Now in the future, will they be able to do it? Maybe, who's to say? Uh, I guess we'll find out during the opening race this year. Um, now that was, that was the engine kind of the, in a nutshell. It was, it was a very, I would say approachable engine, you know, because of how Kyle and Travis have, have built this thing with the help of the engineers. Um, and actually fun fact, if we rewind back to the, the timeline of this, how they, they built a bike, a prototype and, and, you know, uh, basically like a month and a half, all of the engineers associated with the factory effort came on as sort of a part-time thing, not, not that Harley couldn't hire people or anything like that, but the way it was pitched to Harley Davidson was, look, if you guys want to do this, you have to do it in addition to your job. And pretty much everyone raised their hand emphatically and they're like, no, we're doing this. We don't care. We want to be a part of this. So the engineers That's were cool. extremely That's excited. Awesome. The race team was extremely excited. All the staff were just full on board. They didn't care about working weekends, nights, whatever. They just wanted to do it. And to me, it's this, this crazy homegrown story of racing where you have guys doing it, you know, guys and gals doing it, just, you know, burning the mid-eyed oil. You have Kyle and Travis Wyman, their brothers racing. You have ties to Harley Davidson. I mean, uh, their, their family owns the dealership to this day, their grandfather started one, if I remember correctly. Kyle started racing flat track and he raced the XR1200 when that was still around. And Travis has done his time as well, obviously. And it's just a whole lot of things came together to make this happen. And it's definitely one of the coolest stories in racing. However, we're talking about the race bike. So let's continue on that. So now we got the engine in our minds. We know that it is quite the torquey beast. Fueling's awesome. 
And, you know, it is a, it's a manageable motorcycle for all intents and purposes, despite the fact that it's got some serious power. And where I really notice it is um, at Indy Motorsports Ranch, there are a handful of corners that have some slurry patching and the grip levels are definitely different between the, the normal asphalt and that. So when you'd feel the, the tire get a little bit squiggly and you'd feel that that Dunlop slick runs a fat 200 uh, Dunlop rear, you'd feel that start to break traction. You're like, oh, okay, we don't have TC, but the way this engine spools up, it's not as aggressive as, you know, a, a triple or, or a, an inline four by any, any measure. It starts breaking traction. You go, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. And now bear in mind, I wasn't riding anywhere near at the pace that Kyle and Travis are capable of for a number of reasons. One, they are professional racers. Two, the bike needed to go to a museum. And three, I wasn't going to be the one that crashed it. So <laughs> right. all that good stuff. As, as we said at the, at the top of the, the show, that to me is the most obvious, you know, hindrance to any kind of fast lap time. You're going to be grinding the heck. I mean, once you've gone through the floorboards, you're going to be starting on the frame. Yeah. So no, no floorboards to speak of this time around. In fact, the foot pegs are mounted directly to the engine cases on each side because they couldn't find a way to make rear sets that would fit. They couldn't really put mid controls as we'd understand them work. It, it, they just couldn't do it. How do you do that? Doesn't that just vibrate your right vibrate the heck out of your feet? Yeah. Yeah, sure does. <laughs> okay. But when you're riding a one-off race bike you you're not really concerned about that you you have other things in your mind okay all right it, but that was actually something that kyle pointed out to us he goes yeah the foot pegs you're going to feel a lot of vibration um because you're directly connected connected to the engine the the advantage with rear sets is that they hide a lot of that um, most engines vibrate furiously and engineers dissipate all of that or at least mask it through you know, different mounting points and rubber mounts and things like that. And um, being directly connected to an engine is pretty interesting. <laughs> Say that. Interestingly, it's not uh, the vibration on the acceleration, probably because you're so focused about what you're doing, you just don't think about it. Where I did notice it is on D cell. Um, so when I was on the brakes entering a corner, I would kind of go, oh, there is a lot of vibration. <laughs> but, you know, whatever, it's a race bike, you feel all sorts of crazy stuff. So, um, you know, back to the chassis. Oddly enough, I thought you were able to modify the frame per the rules for King of the Baggers, you cannot. So the frame that they're using is a standard road glide, street glide frame. It's just an off the shelf frame. Now they have modified basically every other aspect of this motorcycle. And we'll start from the front and move back to the rear. The fork is now an Olin's uh, FGR 200 fork. That is not quite a true world superbike fork, but for all intents and purposes, might as well be. It's actually the same fork that Kyle was running on his Ducati V4R when he was running that in Moto America. Wow. So it is a true blue superbike fork. It's not quite the highest level of racing. So you're not spending the type of dollars that you would at the world superbike level, but Moto America, BSB, high level uh, national championships 
That's still a twenty twenty five thousand dollar fork, I would think. No, 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 not not that much. Like five, huh? but. <laughs> oh really? Um, no, it's oh, it's wonderful. a lot more a lot more affordable than that. In fact, we'll have to look up the pricing for it. But okay. with the triple trees that are machined specifically for that bike, um, <clears throat> and the fork itself, you know, you're looking at a few grand all said and done. Um, and then we move back. So we've got an Olin's fully adjustable fork. It now can carry uh, radial uh, brakes with a traditional, you know, bottom mount to accommodate the the um, uh, 300 millimeter rotors and uh, Akasato brakes, which is what he ran during the year. We actually had Brembo uh, calipers on there. And what about the wheels? Wheels are 17 inch. Again. That, that fork conversion, you can now run standard 72-inch wheels. You're reducing a whole lot of gyroscopic forces because if you go back to the standard bikes, you're talking about 19-inch wheels and stuff like that or, or bigger on the CVOs. But with the smaller wheels, are they running like carbon fiber wheels? or No, no, no. They're running uh, you know, forged aluminum um, wheels actually off the shelf from Core Moto. Okay. Uh, so there's some, some bits and bobs that are machined for them, if I remember correctly. But uh, Coromoto is a manufacturer based out of Florida, I believe, or that area of the, the country. And they do some excellent, excellent forged aluminum wheels uh, for a variety of applications, uh, typically, you know, sport. But they're, they're high quality products for sure. So 17 inch wheels. Okay, we've already got rid of a lot of gyroscopic forces. And the big thing is we're able to run superbike slicks. Okay, because now we're at 17 inch wheels, we can run those sizes, we're dialed there. The other thing, like I mentioned before, the brakes. Okay, so now we have fully, you know, full spec superbike brakes on there, you know, uh, the uh, RC, uh, Brembo RCS 19 uh, master cylinder. So brake feel is, you know, as you'd expect with any sport bike, really, it was excellent. Um, and now we're moving back through the chassis. Okay, so this is where things get real custom. You look at the swing arm and you go, okay, that is not the, the uh, high tensile steel tubular uh, swing arm of the standard bikes. Right. That is an aluminum swing arm. Uh, and they did it for a number of reasons. Just to fit a 200 tire in there, it's got to be massive. Exactly. So they're, they need to widen it, obviously. Um, and I assumed it was to gain strength and stability, torsional stiffness uh, when compared to the steel swing arm. However, according to engineers, that's not really the case. The main impetus for swapping out the swing arm was to actually achieve the correct swing arm angle and clear the engine case because the standard swing arm was never designed to carry such a steep swing arm angle. When they tried to do it with a standard one, it just conflicted with the engine. So it just was never designed to, to bend down that far. It just starts hitting stuff. Right. Okay, okay, cool. So they go to an aluminum swing arm that has similar torsional stiffness. Apparently it's a little bit uh, stiffer here and there. Again, I was getting some ra uh, very vague uh, race team answers, but um, overall <laughs> it's a lighter solution than the steel. And like you mentioned, it can accommodate that 17 inch wheel with a fat uh, slick on it. And the big benefit was just achieving uh, the swing arm angle that they needed. Because if you look at the photos of this thing, this bike is tall, not just the seating position. This thing is tall. 
I mean, I'm standing behind it and I'm five foot 10 inches. So I'm not the shortest dude in the world, not the tallest, but you can see most of my boot underneath the bike. If you're looking at a head on shot, I mean, the seat itself comes up to my belly button. Wow. And for reference, uh, Kyle and Travis were spinning laps with us on a Pan America. Now, the Pan America kept parking next to the race bike, and I was staring at the Pan America, and it suddenly make, made the Pan America look small. Wow. So, <laughs> seat height wise, visually, it's up in the range of that ADV bike. It's just as tall and significantly wider. But that's something we'll get into in a minute. The chassis, you know, because of that extended swing arm angle, that, that's why they needed the, uh, the aluminum swing arm. And it's also lighter too. Um, now we'll get into effect at the end about all this stuff, but we'll get there sooner or later. Now they do have different shocks. Originally, Harley started with the Olin's Screaming Eagle shocks, which you can just buy off the shelf, fully adjustable kit. Therefore they rode in street glides. They have a, a adjustable length and they're like, okay, let's start here. Cause that's what we got. And they went with that. And interestingly, it only has three inches of suspension trail or 3.2 to be exact. So similar to the Road Glide and Street Glide ST. Um, so not a lot of suspension travel, but obviously Olin's and Kyle and Travis really worked with Olin's to really dial in these shocks and get them really spot on. And that's what I kind of picked up once we started getting a little more comfortable on this bike is just how good the suspension is and how compliance it is. It was stiff, probably too stiff for me and my pace and stuff like that. Like I obviously could have softened it up here and there and just got a little bit more um, movement out of the chassis. But overall, just the actuation of the suspension just feels excellent. And they've done an amazing job. It really is a testament to not only the engineers, but Kyle and Travis's riders. And now let's talk about the handling. Okay, so you guys know that this thing is huge. It has all sorts of performance bits on it. Okay, whatever, whatever. Now we started asking about specific questions about geometry and what we were told was every time they would change something, they would end up going back to relative numbers to the, the standard road and street glides. So the wheelbase is probably up in that 64 inch range, but everything's variable. It's a race bike. They can change it when they need to. Um, and you know the rake and trail numbers, according to the race team, are comparable to the standard bikes. Obviously, the race bike is just way taller, but there's that. So now let's finally get into handling. I know I do preface everything, but the way it handles and where it really stuck out to me is there's a little chicane on the front straight of uh, Indy Motorsports Ranch that the motorcycles use. You come into there, kind of on the brakes, tip it in to the right, and flick it to the left, get on the gas, and you're cresting up over this little, little hill. It's a really tight, technical, fun track. And, uh, you know, it was just shocking, absolutely shocking that a bike that big, I mean, physically big, not in terms of weight, but its length, its height, was able to manipulate it in a way that was, well, again, to use the same buzzword, user-friendly. It felt, it, it's one of the most, you know, it is the most unique motorcycle I've ever ridden, but its behavior was, well, not entirely alien in that context. I mean, these guys have built a bike that knows how to get on the edge of the tire. It's not super bike nimble, 
of course, you're still dealing with something like what the, the race team claimed is probably around mid 640s or into the 650s when it's fully fueled and ready to go. 650 pounds? Yeah. Yeah, that's still a, that's a big machine. It is. But you think about it and, you know, we, we ride bikes like the Kawasaki H2 SXSE, those big sport tours. They're, they're deep into the 500 pound range. So yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. Those things can still hustle. They just take a little effort. And what's interesting is you can really direct the race bike where you want it to go and, and sort of the more aggressive you are with it, the better it gets, which, you know, cause you're actually loading the suspension and giving it better direction and it responds. So in terms of just pure handling, that was something that really kind of got rid of that, uh, that cortisol from my system and really de-stressed me is just how, <laughs> how I was able to, to kind of push it around and get it on the edge of the tire and start feeling more and more comfortable as we pushed on. Right. So Kyle told us, he's like, you guys don't try to drag your knees. And we're all like, why? And he's like, I run knee pucks or rain knee pucks. <laughs> and he, he asked Kyle and he's like, how many knee pucks did you change? And he's like, they still look new. <laughs> he's like, they've touched them like, a handful of times because yeah so even being so tall i mean with 55 degrees of lean angle you're you're, yeah, you're not gonna be touching your knees down they do but like not very often and when they do it's like just these little dabs right um because you think like you're so tall you're so far away from the bike it's like visually it reminds me of like someone riding one of those like 1920s big wheel bikes and then trying to lean it over <laughs> right. but but yeah, Kyle was mentioning, he's like, I wear rain knee pucks when riding these things and mine have like a handful of scuffs on them. <laughs> you know, obviously had to do what I had to do to bring the thing home in one piece. And uh, I, I wish I could have pushed it a lot harder, but we kept it nice and reserved per the instructions from one of the, the uh, Harley Davidson staff, or not instructions, but pleads to make sure it, it makes it to the museum in one piece. Yeah, I mean, one of the most striking things about the look of it, just from the side picture, is the seat. Yeah. The seat is one of the craziest, dare I say, ugliest <laughs> pieces of monstrosity. So obviously, form follows function. They certainly didn't build the seat that way for its looks. What the heck is going on with that? Well, yeah, that, that's actually where I wanted to go with this already. So we kind of know that the thing handles not just well for its size, but I would say I had a better handling experience with this motorcycle than some sport bikes I've ridden in the past, uh, upright sport bikes, I'll say. Wow. Okay. You know, the grip that you get from the tires is immense. Again, I would, I would really attribute that to just its length. Um, you get amazing front end feel and you really understand what's going on with it you know, whether you're breaking traction over some of those slick spots at Indy or, you know, spinning out the rear or whatever, you know, it, you can understand what's going on, which again, for a race bike, when you're riding it at that 10th, 10th pace that Kyle and Travis are doing, you need all that feedback because they need to react at, you know, lightning speeds essentially. And then for some schlub like me, it just prevents us from tossing it down the road. But, uh, <laughs> okay. you know, let's move on to the, the, um, the riding position, which as you know, it is different. So we mentioned before that the foot pegs are mounted directly to the engine cases on the left and right side. That's obviously a little bit different. 
And then the seat, the saddle height, when we were talking to Kyle during initial testing and they're building up the seat, he kind of told this funny story where they were stacking up race foam for the saddle and he just kept going more, more, more foam, more foam. And <laughs> I, I didn't really realize it until riding the road bikes the next day. And I was like, you know what? Okay. So they can't change the fuel tank. Okay. They can't shorten the chassis. They can't do any of that, but this bike has really good front end feel. Okay. You know, maybe not as much as a true super bike or super sport, but a lot more than a traditional bagger. It's not even night and day. It's like insane. Okay. So how, how would they get front end feel? Okay. How do they do that? Well, they have to build the seat up to put the rider's body weight towards the front end of the bike. So you can't move forward. So you start stacking the person upward. And that's why the seat is so tall, a part of the reason, really. Just to position the rider much more over the front end. Yeah. And so you're not only are you loading the front end more and creating that energy transfer to the front, and you're able to understand and have a better connection to the front end. Now, interestingly, I thought all the stuff with the front end would just be like super custom and one-off random, you know, CNC parts, but the handlebars apparently came from a sportster and the mounting point to the, the turbo clamp was from their PA kit that they just kind of modified and made work. So a lot of the stuff that they used is kind of what they had laying around in the PA kit and then just modified for its purpose. But the front end feel is on point. I mean, the sensations you get from the chassis, even riding around at my snail's pace was pretty incredible. Um, again, Kyle and Travis did a, a crazy job developing it. So the seating position is, you know, with that super tall seat, you're way, way more over the front end. And that's how they achieved a lot of that front end feel because they wanted to get that super bike front end feel. You know, I don't think they achieved it by their personal standards, but they did a hell of a job. I'll tell you that. So, you know, being able to trail break and, and trust the front end these are all the things that they had to think about, not only with chassis design and geometry and yada, 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 but just the, the basic riding position is so radically different from anything I've ever ridden. I mean, not only are you tall, you're, you're super exposed. It is, you know, you're way up there. You know, you're, you're sitting just so far off the ground. Right. And, um, <laughs> and then the other thing too, is that it's wide. So, you know, one of the, the interesting things is that it's just, well, it, it's a girthy motorcycle. Okay, no other way to put it. <laughs> so you're sitting there with your legs spread like a like an A-list porn, porn star, you know. You're, you're assuming the position. You know, it's 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 one of those things where it, it's all relative. It's still a motorcycle at the end of the day. But what's sort of uh, kind of hilarious is one of the things that Kyle said to us is like, you know, the hardest thing about riding this bike isn't really riding it; it's starting and stopping. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then. I stood next to it. And I was like, oh, he can't touch the ground. Um, so he has to side saddle because Kyle's a, Kyle's a little bit shorter. He's probably 5'8", uh, 5'9". Five, five, uh, and, you know, some of our other colleagues are shorter than that. So, you know, funnily enough, <laughs> brought out a little motocross stand for people to jump up onto. And <laughs> right, okay. while it was still on the rear stand and then side saddle off with one foot down, so we could oh, hold it, hold, hold the bike up while oh. they took it off the stand. And then one of the crew guys held the front of the fairing. And then we got released. 
Um, okay. But just imagine pulling up to a race grid. You got someone to catch you there and you're like, oh, wobbling up. So, oh, man. Um, oh, wow. And then on the right side, you have that huge exhaust that I'm sure everyone can see. Um, and uh, it has no heat shielding of any kind. So if you do put your right side down, and Kyle and Travis both did this and learned the hard way, you can melt everything in its path because that is a true blue race exhaust that takes no prisoners of leathers or boot. Oh, wow. So the start of races must be really interesting. You're having to sit there with on one foot, on your one left foot, your right leg just sort of draped over the saddle. And then somehow when you drop the clutch, you've got to manage to hold on so that you can climb on board. I mean, holy moly. Yeah. I mean, having watched, watched the starts of Kyle and, and some of the other guys do it uh, in, in that class, what I notice is they're not doing the traditional start where, especially in like MotoGP World Superbike, you'll see a lot of guys get off the start with both feet down. Um, some guys do it, some, some do, some don't. And I've always been told that both feet down is easier to start because you might create an imbalance on a little wheelie and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so generally the both feet down helps just kind of stabilize you. At least that's what they told me when I got my race license, whatever. <laughs> right. Okay. And I bought it. <laughs> whatever you guys go racing and tell me if I'm wrong, but so these guys can't really do that traditional way of starting that they might do on their super bikes or super sports or whatever. Um, and I noticed they just generally keep the right side up and kind of do what they can do and just go, go to town. So that that's that, but yeah, the seating position is radically different from anything I've been on. Um, and in that sense, it, it was a little bit alien. You sit so high off when the bike starts leaning, you're like, man, I'm really far away from these wheels. This is totally strange. But again, going back to the way they've set up and designed this bike, it rides like a traditional bike. It, it's just bigger. Right. Everything happens at a little different pace here and there. Um, right. That's kind of kind of wrapping up the main points of it. Um, it was just genuinely one of the craziest experiences I've had in, in the best way possible. But also really cool. I'm sure in, in terms of, you know, development, despite the short development time, you know, this is a very expensive motorcycle. Yeah. And, and so my a couple of colleagues and I really were pressing them for this information because we wanted to understand how much a bike like this costs. And they're in a position where it's difficult for Harley to actually sum up the amount of money that they spent on this for a legitimate reason, not just a race team reason. Yeah, I mean, they've got, they've got standard employees who are working in their off hours, you know, making one-off parts, um, you know, working evenings and weekends. And if they had to pay all of those guys for all of that time and effort, then they'd be running into the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. I mean, I assume that they were paid. I forgot to actually use them, but, but for using in-house talent like that. It... Yeah. So that was part of the, the difficulty with putting a dollar figure on it. You have two bikes that at this point are kind of unobtainium and they're all one-off parts with people pitching in here and there, jumping in and out. You have, uh, you know, the entire Harley engineering staff and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's hard to calculate because it's just such this, you know, um, a group effort that it, you can't 
really narrow down specific contributions, we'll say. But the next point I'm, I'm trying to get to is with King of the Baggers growing to now a seven race series in 2022, Harley Davidson is really keen on helping grow the grid. So what they're doing is developing these parts that are coming off the 21 now into the 22 bike that is being developed currently. And they're going to make these parts for sale. Oh, that's cool. Cool. Yeah. So you want to go out there and race a road glide, your Mr. Performance bagger. The thing is, it's like racing a super bike is a known thing. It's been known for a while. There are many aftermarket producers that support it. There are, there's doctrine supporting racing a superbike. There are shops that do it. There are plenty of performance shop in the shops in the V twin world, but not in the road racing capacity. Sure. It's getting more popular though. We've seen baggers racingly come up. Different club organizations, especially in Southern California, are are developing V twin classes. For example, CRA in uh, uh, Central and Southern California um, has a V twin class. CVMA, which is one of the premier racing series in in Southern California club racing series has a V-twin class. Um, not sure if AFM does, which is a central and northern California uh, club series, but regardless. Um, these things are becoming more common. Well, Harley wants to support that and sell these parts to the race consumer, obviously. So they want to sell the 131R with all the race bits. That means the crazy custom intake, the which is carbon fiber, by the way. Just thought that was cool. <laughs> yeah, nice. And uh, the exhaust systems, um, piston, etc. The swing arms will be available for sale. The suspension uh, kits will be for sale. Uh, so you could build one of the, these things if you had the know-how. And the figure we got from some Harley Davidson staff is, if you wanted to do it, you could probably build a bike for, I don't know, maybe a, a competitive bike for fifty or sixty. Okay, that's a lot cheaper than I would have thought, but that's uh, that's quite encouraging. Yeah. Then now, if you wanted to build a bike that's up in the podium contention and winning segment, it's probably knocking on the door of six figures. You've got to, you've got to double that, yeah. Okay, but if you wanted to just build one, you might be in that 50, 60, 70 range, whatever. Nice. Fudging the numbers a bit. Okay. Now, the average super bike in Moto America is not far off those numbers. The average super stock bike isn't, it's significantly cheaper, but sure. not, not in a lot of ways. And again, we got to remember that there's, there's a, a, an ecosystem for superbike racing that's well-established, whereas in King of the Baggers, this is just starting. And Harley hopes to produce a lot of aftermarket um, support for the series. And other people will be involved as well. I mean, um, Alloy Art, uh, Krauss, etc uh, etc et they've been in the performance bagger game for a while again not in this capacity but they are involved in king of the baggers people are using their components um so this thing is growing and the intention is to grow racing overall it's the more eyes you get on a racing series the better if this converts people into super bike racing or it gets people on the grid yeah for sure you know whether it's king of the baggers or into super sport or lightweight or super bike whatever uh, rising tides raise all boats right so um that's sort of the, the spirit that harley's going with here and and i think it's more than commendable yeah i do too i think it's great i think it's awesome yeah 
yeah, I enjoy watching it and it's it's fun. It's just nice to see them see them doing it. And I, I would imagine that the technical side of the rules will start to tighten up as you know as things go on, as the as the series matures. Yeah. Yeah. To try and help the help the other members of the grid who don't have the resources that that a factory has. Definitely. You know, to to sort of tighten things. So they'll probably start tightening up the rules a little bit. But uh, but it, I th- I th- think the whole concept is very exciting, and I just really like the idea of taking some, you know, a big fat touring bike that is dis- and completely changing its whole method of operation and the, all the challenges therein. I think it's great. Yeah, it's it's really a story of making the wrong tool right for the job. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that isn't an insult. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome to me. Yeah. It's literally providing the answer to the question that nobody asked. Yes. <laughs> I mean, but, but it's awesome. I, I, I love it. Yeah, I mean, and I can totally see why all the staff wanted to jump on board. Just the, the level of challenge for an engineer and the thought of being able to do something really crazy and actually make it work. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it's good. It's a win-win all around, I would say. Awesome. Good for them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, I have to definitely thank Harley Davidson on behalf of Ultimate and myself. Yeah, and it's a huge privilege to be a part of this because it was an extremely exclusive group um, that were able to partake in it. And according to Harley staff, you know, outside of our small group that wrote it of journalists and um, Kyle Lyman, Travis, and one or two other testers those are the only people that have ever ever ridden those motorcycles um and now it's kyle's bike is destined for the museum in milwaukee and we did take a group picture i'm kind of wondering if it'll end up there because <laughs> okay well thanks thanks for sharing that experience that's great i mean i, I will watch king of the baggers this year and see who comes out on top that's awesome Love it. Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely incredible. All but right. uh, yeah. Good stuff. Okay. All Talk right. To you guys. Thanks.